0: turning your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going to be right at the end of it today. Uh, we're going to begin in verse 19 and uh, go through 29, but we're going to spend most of our time in, in uh, 24 through 29. Let's pray. My Father, thank you for this time. We, we thank you for your word and, and uh, the way that it has transformed our lives. And I pray, Father, that we uh, would do so even more today and and uh, that uh, we might taste and see that you're good. We might taste and see what you have, uh, what you have done for us. That we might taste of, of the powers of the age to come. And uh, we just uh, pray you glimpse, give us a glimpse of that today. We pray that uh, you would be in our midst and do a great work we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 29. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the father will show him greater works than these so that you may marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. <clears throat> and he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who, hear, who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. In this passage, and especially in 24 through 29, John, through the words of Jesus, reveals Jesus's self-identity, who Jesus thinks he is, his relationship to the Father, and what role he is taking on as he brings forward the plan of God for Israel and the world. For the time being, within this gospel, he is dealing with Israel alone, or as John is inclined to say, the Jews, By, by which he doesn't simply mean every Jew, but in particular, those who have decided to kill Jesus, the leaders, the shepherds, and those who do not receive Jesus's testimony about himself and the father's testimony about him through the mighty deeds he is doing. We should not forget, however, that in that world, and even in our own time, to some extent, there's a close relationship between masters and disciples, between leaders and people. And one doesn't easily throw off the rule of one's leaders without incurring their wrath in whatever form it might take. One could not simply ignore the pressure group of the Pharisees who had the power to crush you and your family through community relations, temple, synagogue expulsion, and marketplace pressure, should you be found in violation. Of some tradition that you did, what you ate, and with whom you socialized. Their well being and future, they thought, depended on your actions. Just because we no longer live in these Thai communities doesn't mean that they didn't. And the pressures that come with that were immense. We might be overly critical of the people, were it not for this reality, the people's rejection of Jesus. It seems to me, though, that the leaders of that time will bear a heap of judgment for leading an entire generation and subsequent ones into a resurrection of judgment. Thus, in this gospel, we constantly see these inter-community dynamics at play in a web of relationships between Jesus, the leaders, and the people. The latter two groups are drawn to Jesus for different reasons, with the people finding themselves in a seemingly no-win situation as they have to choose between an ostracized and small community of followers of Jesus and a larger, more powerful community of those resistant to Jesus and his mission. But as we move through this gospel, we will increasingly see that there is a broader mission for the world that is hinted at in the words of Jesus and in the narrative comments of John. An outworking of what we find in John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. This will become a reality as Jesus's identity and mission become clear within the gospel. And here we will see these two things come to the surface. In this passage, Jesus's identity and mission become clear. Jesus's mission and identity are wedded to the identity and mission of the Father with Jesus doing only what he sees his father doing and speaking only what he hears his father speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself. Unless it is something the father, uh, he sees the father doing, he cannot do it. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. Here in this passage, passage, Jesus's dependence and oneness with the Father are on display. And what John is doing through these words is not simply having Jesus go around being God all over the place, such that Jesus and the Father are indistinguishable. No, John goes to great lengths to indicate that Jesus is sent and his Father is the sender. And this is an important thing for us to get hold of. For it speaks of Jesus's role as the visible declaration of the one true God. No one has seen God, John says. The only son who's in the bosom of the father has explained him. <clears throat> if you've seen me, he says later in John, you have seen the father. I and the father are one. It doesn't mean that they're the same person or individual. but He is the express image of God. A clear reference to Jesus within the Shema. Recalling what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. But for us, there is one God, the Father, out of whom are all things, and we for him. And one Lord, Jesus the Messiah, through whom are all things, and we through him. But for us, there is one God. This is a clear reference to the Shema. The relationships and the roles are important. Just as, <clears throat> just as it that it is that Jesus is the one through whom the Father is working. Jesus is the true representative of the Father. And in this relationship, Jesus is God's agent in both creation and redemption. And this is precisely what John is getting at within his gospel as well. Jesus is God's agent in creation, John 1:3. All three things through him came about and apart from him not one thing came about which came about and redemption our passage here for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life even so the son also gives life to whom he chooses god's agent in creation and redemption jesus is god you see the father is god you don't see no man has seen god at any time The only son who is in the bosom of the father has explained him. And this relationship must be preserved throughout the gospel. For the maintaining of this relationship between the father and the son is the grounds for Jesus' obedience and exaltation to the right hand. But in verses 22 and 23, the role of Jesus diverges somewhat from that of the father. Yes, Jesus does the deeds he sees the father doing. And speaks the words he hears his father speaking. But God has or will give honors to Jesus as obedient son by giving him a role. What is that role? Judging the world. Verse 22. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son. So that all will honor the son, even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father whom he sent. I spoke earlier of the way that John portrays Jesus's future status as having already come to be and I think this is another example of that. Jesus it seems has already been exalted to the right hand and has been given all judgment. For not even the Father judges anyone but he has given all judgment to the Son. From the point of view of John as author, this right and role as exalted judge is something that has already become a reality. So he speaks of it as such. He is speaking, though, of Jesus's future position and role as the messianic king, exalted to the right hand where he receives authority over the nations to judge kings and nations, to judge all the nations, Daniel chapter 7. This is how John's other statements about Jesus not being sent to judge makes sense john 317 for god did not send the son into the world to judge the world but that the world through him might be saved this role as exalted king is a way of speaking of jesus's role as son of man i remind us uh, also that son of man doesn't simply mean that jesus was human whereas his other title son of god means that he was divine No, it speaks of a role and function within God's plan for the world. God's plan to bring the kingdom of God about in this world. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory and the kingdom. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You see, when God would become king through one like the Son of Man, he would grant him a kingdom that would encompass the globe. And that is precisely what John is saying about Jesus and his identity and mission. John 5:22, he has given all judgment. To the Son, so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Within this passage in John, Jesus is seeing himself as one like son of man, and the Father as the Ancient of Days. How do we know? Look at verse twenty-seven, five twenty-seven, and He gave him authority to execute judgment, expressly expressly stated because he is the son of man thus as the exalted son of man the prerogative to judge the world has been given to him Acts 17:31 confirms it because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man he has he whom he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead romans 2 16 on the day when according to my gospel God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Jesus is God's agent in judgment, as well as his agent in creation and redemption. A string of Psalms could be referenced here. Psalm 98, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. Psalm 9610, say among the nation, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. John's and Paul's and Luke's claim is that Jesus is the means by which the Lord will render judgment, such that God himself can be said to be the one who is judging. See also Psalm 98, 9, Psalm one ten six, 6, Isaiah 2, 4, Isaiah 11, 4, it's all over the place. The point within John, as he speaks to his adversaries, is that their fate in the coming judgment hinges upon their response to him. They are rejecting and seeking to kill the very one who will judge them in that day. As we see in verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment has passed out of death into life. Here and in the remaining verses, 25 through 29, Jesus infuses the role of Jesus' judging with the power to give life. Why is this? Because the coming day of judgment is at the resurrection, which as we have already seen in John, is basically synonymous with life or eternal life. He who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. See how they're wedded together, but has passed from death into life. What he is saying then is that at the future resurrection, Jesus is the one with the authority to raise the dead and then to render judgment. This is not simply making one judgment. It is a sorting out of all that has gone on a decision-rendering process of taking everything into account and bringing about justice by rendering just decisions. As Paul says in Romans 2.16, it encompasses the very secrets of men. On that day, Paul says, God will judge even the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. In the context of telling the Corinthians to take responsibility and control their local situation, Paul says that the worldly saints, too, will take part in this judgment, in the resurrection. Do you not know, Paul says, that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? And this is something we should really think about. That faithfulness in this present time yields rewarding responsibilities in the age to come. Much like in Matthew 25, 23. When his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Or as Luke 19, 17 says in his version, you will be in authority over 10 cities. Enter into the joy of your master. This is a much different vision of the future state than we commonly have been given, where the focus has been on reunion with loved ones, no pain, no work, uh, Etc. Which we are, in, uh, which are indeed a part of what, what the age of age to come is about, except the no work part. I think it's going to be work. Right? That's that's what it's about. It's about rendering judgment. It's about putting things right. Things right. But that's quite a different vision from what we typically get uh, in historical Christian theology. But it seems to me that the more central concern in the age to come will be justice. Justice in all of its facets being brought into reality by Jesus and his people. Back to our text. There's a little phrase that, that John and Jesus uh, are keen to use, which helps us sort out the Son of Man role that, takes, uh, that Jesus takes on through his obedience to the Father's purpose. An hour is coming, he says, and now is. We also saw this in chapter 4 in Jesus' discussion with the Samaritan woman at the well, where where he says it twice. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. He repeats that here in our current passage. And when we combine the two passages, we get something quite beautiful. True worship is joined with resurrection and the resurrection life. So that those who hear the voice of Jesus enter life, they enter true worship, and this is nothing less than entering into the resurrection. Verses 25 through 29. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, And those who hear will live. For just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Don't marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. The second time here he says it, he just says an hour is coming, and he doesn't say, and now is. That's reserved for the future. But what he does say is, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. What is going on here? We can first simplify and say that Jesus is saying that two things that ought not to be simultaneously true are, in fact, true. In the future, the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and the ones who actually pay attention and hear will live. That is, they will enter into the resurrection of life. And according to Jesus, this is already true in some sense. This is what is often called inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated. It's not simply about the future, as eschatology itself seems to focus on. It is also about the present. What was out there in the future has been brought into the present, inaugurated, if you will, in the present time in anticipation of the future time. Here's how it works. In essence, you have an overlapping of the ages, an overlapping of this present evil age, which was going on until the Messiah comes. And then when the Messiah comes, the new age burst into this present evil age from the future and continues going forward, The both of them working simultaneously. It is essentially the kingdom of God advancing in this world, coming into this world. This present evil age has a parallel, which within Jewish eschatology is called the age to come. They call it Ha'olam Hazet, this age, and Ha'olam Habak, the coming age, what Jesus is claiming to be doing and what Paul claims Jesus has done is to bring the future into the present so as to make the future a reality in the present. The future. We'll see this also in John 11 when he raises Lazarus. He says basically the same thing when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me now, right, you will not die. Right? And those who believe in me and die, yet they will live. He says things are, that are simultaneously not true or don't seem to be able to be true. But what he's saying is that the future has come into the present. What was thought to be the future resurrection, where God puts everything right through the Son of Man, has come into the present in, an, in a beginning, incipient way. And those who believe in Jesus enter into resurrection in the present time. This is precisely what he means by having eternal life. And it's how you can have what belongs only to the future in the present. And this has huge implications for now. As I've said many times, we are to look more and more like our future selves and to make our spheres of influence look more and more like the resurrection. It is why we put to death the deeds of the body. If we do so, we will live, Paul says. What he means is we will enter into the resurrection We will enter into the resurrection and all that that means and brings in terms of roles and responsibilities and joy and, above all, love. It is why we call ethics, what we call ethics, actually matters. In this present, in the present, we are bringing about, in small ways, the future into the present. It is why giving someone a glass of water actually matters. It's why the unnoticed acts of kindness matter. It has nothing whatsoever to do with earning anything. It is bringing the future resurrection into the present, pulling the future to us. That's what biblical hope actually is. We have here a statement about justification, essentially, but without the use of the term. The whole point of justification by faith is that it occurs, Paul says, in the present time. With a final justification awaiting us in the future, where there will be a reckoning, both positive and ne- negative. Justification was thought by the Jews to be future only. On that day, God will render to each person, they would say, and Paul confirms according to his deeds. But in the Messiah's coming, what was in the future only, <clears throat> what was in the future only has been brought to light in the present. Paul calls it justification by faith but now he says Romans 3 21 but now apart from the law the the, apart from the law God's covenant faithfulness has been manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets being justified he says verse 24 as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus for the demonstration I say of his covenant faithfulness at the present time that's the whole point of it so that he would be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In the present time, through faithful loyalty to Jesus, one can enter into covenant status as righteous in anticipation of the future justification on that day. Justification itself is part of inaugurated eschatology, bringing the future justification into the present through the faithfulness of Jesus In his death, in and to those who hold fast to Jesus. This is, of course, done by the Spirit, the renewal of the covenant, who brings our current lives into accord with the future state, so that we can stand upright at the judgment and give an account that the deeds done in the body have been wrought in God, John, John 3.21 says. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. John's point in chapter three is not that people simply do this on their own. No, this comes about for those who receive the words of Jesus and believe in him. Let me summarize. Jesus claims that God has designated him judge, presumably on the basis of his faithful obedience to God's plan for Israel and the world that is yet to be seen, in the gospel, in this gospel, though John speaks of it as a current reality because of his knowing that Jesus is going to execute his mission faithfully. This judging and life and death as well are at work now in the world. The time is coming and now is. Life is working in God's people, those who have the spirit, and death is working in the world. God through Jesus has inaugurated the future age to come, And what determines one's future state, not in some abstract sense of heaven, but one's place within the resurrection, is whether one listens to the voice of the Son of God. That's what determines the future state. And if one listens to that voice in the present, in the present, he can have resurrection life. And this life we enjoy in Jesus, in the Messiah. Those who believe in him expressing their loyalty to him coming under his rule are said to have passed from death into life you can safely ignore all that i've said about jesus bringing about the future bringing the future into the present if you don't want to understand your new testament but if you want to understand your new testament you have to come to grips with this view of the present reality and the future reality that jesus sees himself bringing about And I want to encourage you all to pursue an understanding of what I've said today. It It will transform how you understand Jesus's mission and what he has brought about. It will transform your understanding of the Bible in general and the New Testament in particular. And it will also transform your life, how you live in this broken world with your lives and my life pointing to the age to come in which God's full transformation of this earth will become a reality. For it is time, Peter says, for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? There is a strain of Christianity that says we must turn our minds off when we come to the Lord. I understand it. It is good and proper to rest in the world, in the Lord. But if you turn off your mind, you won't gain wisdom. And you won't know or properly know, properly be able to communicate the beauty of Jesus, what he has accomplished, and the meaning of the word of God. We don't take a remain ignorant approach with anything else in this world. Why do we do that with the Bible? These words matter, they matter immensely, and your mind matters. It is how we develop the mind of the Messiah by taking every thought captive to obey the Messiah. Sure. It may be more important for some than others, but all of us in some ways, as witnesses, are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making his appeal through us. We want to be equipped, and knowing and understanding the word is the only way to get equipped. Knowledge, of course, is not the end, but it's a means by which we communicate the love of God and the life of the age to come to this present evil age. So let me close by encouraging you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. Note he does say the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. What he has done, how he's accomplished it, what he is doing within the world, and what he is doing through us, these things we must grow in. Exploring his claim to have brought the future resurrection into the present which we have just seen. We'll see this more as we progress in, uh, within John, principally in the person of Lazarus. So if you think about what has happened or what's about to happen with Lazarus, you will see that, that what he is saying here is coming to pass in some, in some small way. When we glimpse the power of God to see uh, the power of the Son of God to call forth the dead from the grave. This too, Lazarus, is only a prelude to that final day though. As Daniel 12 says, when many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. What Jesus has done is he has brought the future into the present. He has brought the resurrection where judgment will be rendered into this present time. Judgment must begin with the house of God.